welcome to our new episode of Global.Science. I'm Fabia Battistuzzi. And I'm Lev Kordiski. And we are the hosts of this podcast that will that focuses on science communication and uh, um, many other interesting topics that we discuss with our guests. Do you think we should so, have said that in the first episode instead of like the 12th? Yeah, probably would have helped, but you know, it's okay. Eventually our, our readers, our listeners, I'm sure have figured it out. <laughs> okay. Um, so now you all know. <laughs> now you know why you are listening to this. Well, hopefully you knew before, but you know, whatever. Uh, if you're still with us, we are very happy to have you. And we are going to be talking today about something quite interesting, which is again, it's at the interface of science and uh, the public. So love to start our conversation, our yes. usual interesting questions. Have you ever done any arts and craft? I have. Um, usually it ends up as something on like a show like nailed it. Um, so um, but I have I have attempted art. Um, I do more writing, uh, but on the art side, uh, I I find it's actually easier to do art on my iPad because there's an undo button. <laughs> Yes, that probably would have saved me a lot of grief when I was a kid. Pretty much all my arts and craft happened in elementary school, where fortunately for me, I had erasers that I could use, but that's the extent of my undo. <laughs> okay, so have you done a lot of arts and crafts? It wasn't a lot, but I always enjoyed mostly playing with colors. That was the, and and still now I belong to the category of those adults that uh, like to have the coloring books. And so I have my, you know, science coloring books that I like to play with when I am not actually working, which is very rare, but um, yeah, it's it's kind of fun. It's it's It helps me relax and it helps me visualize the things in a different way. What is a science coloring book? Do you have like phylogenetic trees you color? <laughs> No, that is what my students do when they are actually have to do their project. I tell them the only kind of artistic expression that you get is when you get to make a poster. That's the extent of the artistic expression that we have in the sciences, at least limited. with my bioinformatics background. <laughs> it's pretty limited. Um, but have you ever incorporated art into like your teaching or your outreach? I, I try. I haven't been really successful to be perfectly honest but that's because I don't have the background really to do it and I don't have much of the time to really think about it but I'm starting to thinking uh, about it more so that I can so that I can do it because it's a good way of communicate science um, and so I always encourage my students to try to think you know if you were to explain this to your five-year-old nephew how would you do it you would have to play with the ideas and uh, and that's that usually they, they come up with some cool ideas i think interesting my my first experience with art in the classroom was um when i was TAing in graduate school and one of the assignments was to look at science and art and i thought initially that it was a really silly idea because it felt very it felt very different and disconnected from science that science is like the rational exploration of of um, 
of reality, whereas art is, well, we discussed this before, modern art could be like a splatter on a wall. Um, but I did find that this kind of activity was very engaging for general education students who generally maybe had difficulty connecting with the material. And when I saw how effective it was, I started using it more and more in, uh, in my activities to the point where uh, one of my students, uh, I, I was helping them connect astronomy to their interests and they were doing advertising and they had no idea how to connect astronomy to advertising. And I suggested to them, uh, what about some of those NASA posters that were advertisements for different stars and different planets? You could do something like mm -hmm. that. And that sparked a connection for her. She generated some really, really nice advertising materials for going to some, well, pretty hellish places in the solar system. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the, I think that's the power of it. It helps you expand your horizon beyond the, just the numbers that show up on your computer screen to actually think of what could be the applications. I mean, honestly, at the, at the core of science is creativity, is imagination. That's at the core of any scientific question. And sometimes I think when we zoom in too much, we kind of lose that, we get lost in the data. And so getting back to it helps us come up with new ideas. And I, I think that's very powerful. Okay, and I think this is the uh, worst segue to our guest today, Dr. Melissa Party, who is an assistant curator of geology at the Illinois State Museum. But we couldn't exactly talk about museums again because we've asked all those, uh, we've already had all those museum conversations before, and it turns out that we have gone to museums and we like them, so we had to talk about something else. So, um, Melissa, welcome to the show. Thanks for asking me to join you and participate and chat. So we'll get to the art later on, but um, I think Fabia had a good question that I think we were discussing before we started recording that I think she'll let Fabia have the first question. Sure, so I was curious if you could tell us a little bit about how you landed the position that you have now, because it's kind of unusual compared to the classic, you know, you do your PhD, you do your postdoc, you become an assistant professor, and then you lose a job because you don't get a grant. So <laughs> what could, uh, other, other ideas for alternative careers always seemed very interesting to me. So how did you end up where you are now? Well, so I'm, I'm a vertebrate paleontologist. Um, and, you know, I, I've always enjoyed museums, um, like going to them as a kid, liked going to them as an adult. Um, and it actually turned out that in graduate school, I, I spent some time going to museums to collect data. And there are these really important resources as far as supporting the sciences and their really cost effective as far as like return on investment. You have collections that exist, you know, uh, hopefully in perpetuity. And you can ask all kinds of interesting and new questions with collections and data that exist and actually create new data sets from objects that have existed in museums for, you know, decades, sometimes, sometimes longer. And so I've always had that, that interest in museums and have really appreciated their value uh, as a scientist in getting my degree. And it actually turns out that um, my, my master's advisor when I was at Penn State 
was in, integrally uh, involved uh, with museums throughout his career. So I became aware of the fact that it was a employment venue kind of early on. So mm -hmm. he actually came through the Illinois State Museum back in the, the 70s and 80s. He was here and I sometimes find pieces of paper here with his handwriting and I'm like, oh, that's his handiwork. Um, and then he was at the that's Denver. Awesome. Yeah. And then he was at the Denver Museum of Science. Uh, and then he ended up at Penn State with their uh, smaller Earth and Mineral Sciences Museum, which is where uh, he and I connected and he was uh, a professor, but also the director of that museum. And we collaborated and I got into doing field work as well as, you know, getting specimens ready to go into permanent storage and collections. And so he knew I had this interest and it was largely networking that actually ultimately got me the current position that I'm in because he remained in contact with the Illinois State Museum and the folks that were here. And when they he found out that they were going to be looking to hire a new geology curator, he, he let me know that that was going to be coming coming up soon. And I was just finishing up my, my PhD and had been uh, working at a postdoc for, for a while and was going to be looking for a permanent position, not, not just another temporary two-year stint. Yeah. And I applied for the job and, and I ended up getting it. So that's, that's basically how I, how I ended up here at this specific <laughs> location. Yeah. Okay. That, that's quite interesting. I didn't know that, you know, um, positions like the one you are in now, uh, are actually, uh, potentially leading to uh, moving to different museums uh, uh, over the course of a career, right? For some reason, I always uh, had this idea in my head that once you start, you know, in a place, you stay there, um, but that doesn't seem to be the case. So that's, uh, that's interesting because it, it allows you to get exposed to different kinds of uh, museums and different kinds of collections. So that's, uh, that's interesting. It, it gives you, um, it gives you a lot more uh, opportunities, I guess, than just staying always in the same place if somebody wants it. Yeah, and I've seen people do both, right? So you okay. you you definitely see people who, you know, will will take a position at a museum and you know stay there for the the entirety of their career. Um, you know, they're there for decades, um, and then you know sometimes you get an itch and you want to move into a different different type of work, and I think. Uh, for him, he was looking. He was looking to to move. Um, I think mm -hmm. he was also looking for kind of kind of something new. And he was actually director uh, in Denver, so uh, that was also a way to sort of advance advance his right. career as as well. Um, but then along with that came you know sitting at a desk and doing a lot less of the science. So as a curator, he did a lot of science. But then as a director, he you know it's a more it's a it's an administrative role, and he oh, yeah. he. He missed the field work <laughs> and he also missed the interaction with students. So I think that's ultimately why he decided to, to move yet again and go to Penn State. Um, you know, it was, a, it was an interesting sort of hybrid situation because he was director of this small museum, but he was also a professor. And so mm -hmm. he was able to, to have students and do, do, uh, do research and also uh, work in a museum. So it was kind of, I think, uh, a lot of a lot of what he wanted uh, in, that, yeah. in that last position, yeah. Yeah, the 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 increase in administration burden is a kind of the curse of a career that progresses in a certain direction, I guess. Yeah. So, yeah. 
what what exactly does an assistant curator do? Yeah, well, my, my title is a little misleading. I am the only geology curator currently at the Illinois State <laughs> Museum. I am simultaneously the assistant curator of geology, but I'm also like the chair of my department of <laughs> one person, right? And so some do you volunteers. assist yourself? I assist myself. Um, no, it's, and I'm, an, I'm, I am a state employee. Um, so I'm, I'm actually with the Department of Natural Resources is what the, mm -hmm. the museum kind of falls, the umbrella that the, the museum, uh, the, it falls into the state government. Um, my role here, uh, because it's just me um, in geology. And I mean, we have other curators here. We have other departments that have different aspects of the collection. So we've got an a, um, we've got an anthropology collection that has has some has a few people working in that section. We've got a zoologist. We've got um, a botanist who works in the herbarium, and we've also got art and and history as well. Uh, so it's, we're we're a state museum. We're here to uh, basically uh, care for and document the the history of things pertaining to Illinois, and so my collection is the, you know, the rocks and the fossils and the minerals um, that pertain to the state. Although we do have kind of a more broad collection that includes things from, from the Midwest. So it's, it's more of a, a, a Midwest, but with an Illinois focus to it. Mm -hmm. um, and so in, in my role, I, I care for the collection. I study the collection. So it's, I can use it for research. I'm also here as, um, a resource for other scientists. So we do have researchers that come into the building to um, access the collections for their projects. So the, the actual building that I work in is the, the Research and Collections Center, which is a separate building entirely uh, from our building uh, in the Capitol complex that has the exhibits. Um, the curators though here are, are, many of us are very involved with our education team. Uh, providing, uh, you know, we speaking, we speak to the public. We also uh, provide just kind of like a fact check for for content for things that are for education and outreach. And we're also very much involved with um, ex producing exhibit content. So uh, we're we're there uh, helping with that content and you know providing the objects for those exhibits and some of the placing them into context and providing the information about those objects and just caring for the objects themselves. Like they, they're in uh, climate control storage. Uh, the majority of our collection is, you know, not on exhibit. It's behind the scenes. A lot of it is actually a research collection and frankly, not something that, you know, the public might find very interesting to look at. It's, you know, kind of ugly, but, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, the, the, the purpose of having it in this building is to keep an eye on it and uh, make sure that it's, it's safe and protected. Uh, we, you know, have some valuable objects and irreplaceable things. Um, and, you know, if things start to fall into disre disrepair, we're there to, to intervene uh, to do right. some conservation work as well. So about how much of your collection is generally on display to the public compared to what's behind the scenes? Um, that's actually a pretty hard question to answer. Uh, we have, so as I can't speak for the other parts of the collection, but I know that uh, for geology, we're actually... Uh, don't have the the most uh, comprehensive uh, tabulation of everything that we have because we sometimes bring things in as a group and it takes time to then actually uh, you know 
pull everything out, take a look at it, count. Um, and so there's, you know, most museums have this problem that they have a backlog, right? Um, and it's just a matter of time, funding, and people uh, to look to look at those objects. Um, you know, if I had to make make a guesstimate, we actually do have a lot of our material on exhibit, and that's one of the things that's really nice about our exhibits is that we've got a lot of really nice stuff that's real that's on exhibit for people to look at, but it's the best of the best. Um, so, I mean, easily, I would say probably like no more than 20% of what we have is actually um, for, out for the public to look at uh, on a regular basis. Although, we, I mean, we do do um, tours and stuff of the collection facilities on occasion. And so if people wanted to, to see, you know, what's behind the scenes, uh, there are opportunities for people to like wander around and see um, you know, supervised, uh, what we've got behind locked doors. Cool. Do they, do they get to see when you are cleaning up and taking care of some uh, fossilized, uh, I don't know, jaw or something like that? <laughs> we don't have anything set up like that here. I, I've seen it at other museums where they've got basically like a fish tank with a person <laughs> with a preparator in it. And you can, you can see people working on the specimens. Our, our preparation space is, um, is, is, is basically not, not accessible to, to the okay. public. It's a little bit hazardous. Um, yeah. Frankly, uh, there's, you know, chemicals, uh, there's heavy objects, there's sharp objects, there's things to trip on. <laughs> so uh, yeah, we do not have that set up currently. <laughs> so do you think the, and I think this is a bit of a difficult question to answer, but do you think it's possible maybe in the far, far future that a good part of the collection will be digitized, maybe even in 3D? Actually, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, we're actually currently in making preparations for that. Uh, a lot of museums are moving towards uh, scanning and digitizing and getting their collections online. Uh, we're, we're actually working at the moment for getting the data associated mm -hmm. with our collections more accessible in a database that uh, is searchable online. And that's, um, that's going to take some time to do. Um, we have some old collections that, you know, need a little bit of work and some of the, some of the, a lot of the information is, you know, potentially missing. Uh, so we have to fill that in, um, or track, track down and find it. Um, but yeah, we actually did recently acquire a, a very fancy 3d scanner. Um, and we do have, you know, when we have researchers that come and use the collection, a lot of them are, are expressing interest in taking 3D scans of the, the research specimens that, that they're working on. And as part of, you know, kind of like give and take, uh, they have the access to the collection, but we do ask that they share those images with us. So once we get this, this database up and, up and running, we won't just have the metadata um, for the specimens that we have, but for a lot of the stuff, especially things that are, you know, of particular importance um, and also are, you know, fun and cool to look at um, or are really scientifically relevant where you want to look at the morphology, we'd like to get those things, um, those, those up uh, on the internet as well for people to check out. And we've got a Sketchfab account um, with a few objects. And uh, I have a researcher who came through several weeks ago and took some scans and we're going to be getting those up on there, hopefully in the near future. So cool. uh, yeah, so in, in the meantime, we're getting things up on Sketchfab at least so that people can, can take a look. 
So in regards to that, because I've always been skeptical of 3D scans of specimens, because there's more to specimens than just their visual look. There's also the heft, sometimes there's the smell. Um, and as a geologist, you know, there's also the taste. Uh, mm -hmm. so we eat rocks <laughs> to find certain properties. Um, I could see it being useful in the context of getting some part of the collection out there for broader consumption that couldn't be done if you only need to access a physical object, access the physical object. But what would be the utility of, of just a simple visual 3D scan of any kind of specimens? And uh, I, I've always considered it more of a like, oh, that's cool, but I don't know how I, I would use it in a research uh, setting or I'd rather see the real thing and handle the real thing. Yeah, so um, outside of, you know, people who study morphology, um, which is looking at the physical uh, nature of, you know, in particular, you know, as a paleontologist, I'm, my first thought goes to, you know, the fossils themselves. Uh, these are really precise models. And so you can do um, all kinds of really interesting uh, analyses um, on, on these specimens. The other really cool thing is with multiple institutions, putting their data up online, just images and stuff that you can take these measurements from. You can look at multiple institutions and get a huge data set um, from your computer. Uh, the other thing is sometimes you, if, if you are looking at just a spreadsheet of what a museum has, it doesn't necessarily tell you uh, everything you, ne you need to know to make an assessment of whether or not you want to get on a plane and make a plan to go to, to go to this collection to see these objects, uh, actually being able to get your eyes and a visual on the specimen can help in making that decision process on like seeing what the museum actually has. Like, do they actually have a skull or do they have like, you know, part of a skull? And is that gonna work for me as far as a data point? Like those are the, and you don't necessarily have to like, email the curator, email a collections manager to try and like get, you know, an assessment. Um, in, and also, like you said, there's so much more to a specimen than just looking at it and being able to take measurements from it. Um, even the best photographs and even the best scans, it's, it's no replacement for actually like seeing the specimen. And so like, I think, you know, digitizing the collections isn't going to be a replacement for physically going to collections. It's, it's in addition to, it's getting more information out to people so that they can make, make some decisions about, about research. Um, it also makes it more accessible to the public because, you know, as I said, like so much of it isn't available in the exhibits and we can only update exhibits so often and we can only have like, only have so much physical space for, especially if you're looking at things like you know, mammoths and mastodons, they're really big. Um, they, their body parts take up a lot of space. We can only put so many of them on exhibit. Um, but, you know, if you were really interested, you could, you know, potentially, you know, click through a bunch of bunch of images and, and, and really get an idea of what, what museums have by what they have available just to look at online. Okay. So I, I have to ask Melissa, do you have a favorite piece in the museum? Oh, it changes. It changes fairly regularly. Um, I I really really like, and this is actually on exhibit. We have um, 
uh, excavated from a cave. It's a giant short face bear paw. It's, it's absolutely perfect. It's, it, I mean, it's, it's the hand, you, all the fingers are, and the bones are like perfectly lined up. And it's just like, it's just so neat. And it's this giant bear paw. And that's just so cool. Um, I found out a couple of weeks ago that there's this like kind of smashed bison skull that's in, not on exhibit, but is in our collection. And I found out the significance of this specimen. It is the, the first b- b- bison in North America. It is, so this is a very significant specimen. It is, it is the harbinger of the Rancho La Brand. So like it is, it is bison. Here it is. It's the first one that we've, that we've got. It's one, it's, if it's not the oldest, it's in the top three contenders for like first bison in North America. So it's scientifically very significant. Um, and then of course our state fossil is just like really cool. We have, um, if you're not aware the Illinois state fossil is the Tully monster, which is this bizarre soft bodied aquatic animal um, uh, from the Carboniferous and Illinois has the Maison Creek formation, which produces these really cool um, concretions and they, they preserve soft body tissues. And so like you actually like get this critter, it's only found in Illinois and it is truly bizarre looking. It's, um, it has what I, you know, like a, like a, like an appendage that comes off the front with like a claw and like these weird <laughs> eye stalks that stick off the side of the body. And there's always been like this, you know, intense debate on like, what is this animal? And uh, it's, it's just truly weird and delightful. Um, and I think we have a really great state fossil. So, you know, that's and, also obviously a favorite. And for our listeners, I have to say, you are not seeing the video, but we are seeing the video and Melissa is literally beaming when she's talking about this <laughs> <laughs> with the eyes sparkling and the giant smile. So we can tell you really like them. <laughs> hey, that's just me. That's just me and fossils. I'm, I'm always happy to talk about fossils and well, everyone loves an anomalocaris or an ophabina. So yeah, they're you know because they're weird, right? Like everybody likes yep. weird things. Weird dead things. Um, yeah. We should shift over to like actually arts and crafts. Otherwise, we're going to have to record a new intro because it's going to make <laughs> no sense. Um, so we were chatting uh, before we started recording that you're working on a new exhibit and you're working on incorporating uh, some arts and crafts into it. Can you talk a little bit about? Um, my note here is using crafts uh, to communicate climate change. What kind of got you interested in that and, and how are you incorporating crafts into, into a science exhibit where I would guess the public would expect to see like uh, facts listed in a boring uh, paragraph. Yeah, and the way you said that is exactly why we're, we're trying to avoid uh, facts in a boring paragraph. Um, so it is a scientific fact that people, uh, when they go to museum exhibits, they don't they don't want to read um, a lot um, on average. I mean, your typical museum visitor um, is gonna spend a certain amount of time looking at things and they want, you have to capture their attempt, attention uh, pretty quickly. And so we're doing this exhibit that's going to be on the consequences of climate change with a focus on the Midwest, um, in particular, Illinois. And it's in a, a gallery uh, in our science section at the museum that's really intended to be, you know, it's up for maybe about a year and then we rotate it out with something. So it's supposed to keep like current information. And so we're doing um, this exhibit on climate change to give sort of an update because it is uh, a really important topic, uh, not just of the moment, but it is it is a very important topic. And, and so we were thinking of ways that like 
how can we communicate to people like what is going on with climate change? Why should they care? Um, which is why it has a Midwestern focus. And I came across um, a project called the Tempestry Project. And these are, are were folks who were using um, climate data to create uh, basically, you know, uh, knitted pieces or crocheted or woven pieces that were, were based on the climate data where the colors change um, according to how the climate has changed. And so uh, this, there's, this is also related to the, if you looked at hashtag climate, uh, show your stripes, uh, there's an, a related project um, that this was inspired from. And basically it's looking at ways to show climate data without actually even having to put numbers. Uh, so people can, can see, you give them an explanation of, you know, if it's blue, it's cooler, if it's red, uh, it's warmer, and the intensity of that color is how much it has changed. So if it's very light blue, it is slightly cooler. If it is, you know, kind of pink, it's a little bit warmer, or if it's, you know, brick red, that is an indication that it's, it's gotten quite a bit warmer. And so you, you just look at these pieces and you, it's with, you know, it's, it's very intuitive. And the people who, um, who did the Tempestry project, one of the things that they, they really um, expressed to me was that it's also like kind of meditative for the people actually making the craft themselves. It's like you actually have to sit with the data for an extended period of time, it takes, it can take a really long time to knit a scarf or do a blanket. And so you're sitting with this climate data and you really do think about it for a while. And if you're somebody who's a knitter yourself or someone who does craft, you look at a piece and you realize somebody spent a really long time with on this. You tend to, when, when you, you see something like that that has a lot of work put into it, you kind of tend to sit and pay attention to it a little bit more. Um, so yeah, we're not gonna have uh, too many, too many graphs in this exhibit. Um, maps are great. People like looking at maps. Um, but, but really, I know a lot of scientists who actually are knitters. Um, and I think it's just, it's one of these activities that you can do that, uh, in, you know, you're sitting in front of the TV or sitting during uh, a lecture and keep your hands busy and produce, produce art. Um, and I, yeah, I know a lot of scientists who do that and it's just, it's, I guess, meditative for them and they, they enjoy it. Um, so yeah, like I, I know a lot of really artistic and creative scientists. Um, and because I know that they're interested in crafts and we've got people here at the museum who are, you know, quilters, knitters themselves, people who are interested in art. Um, it's just, it's something that crosses across disciplines that I think a lot of people can appreciate. And so you'll see something, also it is really different for something in a science exhibit. You know, you're walking through these exhibit halls and there's just like rocks and fossils and uh, you know, a bird stuffed in the corner there. And then you see a scarf, like what, why is this scarf hanging here? What do these colors signify? Um, I'm really hoping it makes people pause and, and stop and actually take a look at the exhibit. I like how you mentioned that um, it's it's so I, I like how you mentioned the meditative uh, stance on it and that it can keep uh, scientists hands busy. We could use that more in lectures so that they don't ask so many questions because they can't <laughs> raise their hands. Yes, and also in very boring meetings. 
It is very important because it's the only way to stay awake. <laughs> Keeps you awake. That's great. Yep. Well, that's that's wonderful. It sounds like an amazing exhibit. When is the exhibit going to be ready? The exhibit is supposed to open on Earth Day. Um, so wow. climate change, Earth Day. Um, so that is April 22nd, 2022. So it's already open, assuming that we air this episode after the 22nd, <laughs> which is likely. And that the exhibit went off without a hitch. <laughs> you said you just started working on it today or something? No, I've been working on it for, for a while. <laughs> That's Excellent. wonderful. So I think this is a good place to stop. Melissa, thank you again for joining us and for sharing all of these wonderful insights into the what happens behind the scenes of a museum. You're, you're really welcome. And it was wonderful to, to see you both and to chat for a while. So Fabia, what did you learn today? So, you know, the more we talk to our guests, the more I realize that I think I'm the most boring person in the world. That is true. <laughs> exactly. Because all I do is I, I, I wake up, I go to work, I come home, I go out with the dog, I go to sleep, and the day after I do the same thing. But I don't I'm already dozing super off. cool stuff. <laughs> I'm already dozing off. Exactly. I, I need to expand my horizons and do something more fun. Like all our guests. knitting for a while. We were part of a knitting club when we were in graduate school and uh, I quickly lost my patience because I made the loops too small and realized my scarf was going to take forever. <laughs> yeah, knitting is amazing. But I picked up a guitar, so I'm learning guitar now. So at least I'm doing something artistic, but I don't think you can do climate science with guitar. I don't know, maybe. Sonification, maybe I could do that, who knows? So you picked it up, <laughs> have you actually tried playing it? Well, yes, I, am, I, I, I can strum two notes right now, that's it. <laughs> so I think the most interesting thing for me was just kind of behind the scenes of how a museum works. I've, I think I've only gone behind the scenes of a museum once, I think it was in Alaska, and I didn't realize how much of the collection was just back there in storage. I, I guess I always thought that all the stuff was on display and that museums were primarily um, a, uh, a show and tell place. Not that I was vaguely aware that they are research institutions, but I never realized that, oh, I could call up a museum and ask if I can access their collection to supplement my research. Um, so I think that's curious. That's something I think that isn't mentioned enough to um, students, I think, when they're starting their degrees. Because um, certainly I did work in some core libraries and nobody really told me that core libraries existed where I could get cores and uh, analyze them. And they're more than happy to uh, bring you in and show you things and, and lend you material. Um, so I, I thought that that was uh, quite interesting. Yeah, and I think this kind of goes back to the way we teach science and the way students perceive science because they tend to perceive science as this is what I need to learn. Everything is known. I just need to memorize it. And, you know, showing them that there are these vast amounts of specimens and samples that 
they haven't be, even been fully uh, cataloged yet because it takes time and it's a difficult thing to do. It's a whole world out there that shows us that what we know is not even the tip of the iceberg, it's the tip of the tip of the iceberg <laughs> of, of what you know actually is out there. And I, I think if more people knew about all this, they would understand the process of science a lot better. Okay, so suggesting there should be more behind the scenes and maybe tricking the public into classifying some things while they're there uh, looking behind the scenes. Exactly, put it in a PlayStation game or something, Xbox, Wii, whatever it is that the kids are using now. I don't know, but it worked, something. It worked, for, uh, it worked for protein folding. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and that's the thing. I mean, imagine how, how I, think people, I think kids would have fun if they could actually have a game where they have to categorize, the, I don't know, some sort of fossil. That would be cool. I think, uh, I think Tom Sawyer had the same strategy. <laughs> that's it. I'm channeling my inner Tom Sawyer, but then I'm giving the job to Melissa. So Melissa, that is your next job. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Excellent. So I think that's a good place to end. Thank you all for joining us. Um, we still don't have a sign off phrase, do we? Nope. I will just end the first season without it. Just accept it. <laughs> okay. That, that sounds good. All right. Thanks everyone for joining. Bye. Bye. Today's music is Mystery 70 Mix by Stock Studio from pixabay.com. To learn more about the Illinois State Museum, go to www.illinoisstatemuseum.org. Global.Science is a production of Science Voices, a U.S. nonprofit. To learn more about our work and to help support it, please visit www.sciencevoices.org.